been here before, but we've been looking forward to it for some time. And we have met the Cliffords before and had the joy of being with John's parents in the assembly where they fellowship right before the quarantine hit. So the last good memories we had prior to COVID were here in Connecticut, and we got to go to the Mystic Aquarium and to the Nautilus and different things and uh, went to Yale and checked out some of the cool museums there, including the Beneke Library with its marvelous Gutenberg Bible on display. And you have some real treasures in this part of Connecticut, not to mention the pizza. So it is good to be with you. We are from Pennsylvania. At least that's where I'm from. My wife is an import. Naomi comes from Iowa. And our four children, of course, have been born and raised in Pennsylvania thus far. They are 15, 13, 12, and 10, respectively. Three girls, and then the youngest is a boy. And you can meet them. They'll tell you their names. Uh, Just a word of testimony. Naomi and I have similar testimonies in that we both have the immense blessing of having been brought up in Christian homes, which, of course, isn't necessary for salvation, nor does it even guarantee one's salvation, because it's a personal thing. To as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. And so it's between us personally and the Lord Jesus Christ. Though our parents or grandparents are further back, maybe believers, each person has to believe for themselves. And yet when you grow up in a Christian home, you are witness to as far back as you can remember. At least that was our experience in our respective homes. And we thank God that in each of our cases, we got saved in childhood. I was seven in the summer of 1980. And so the Lord was very gracious in meeting me very early in life and leading me along. And I didn't think that I would be full-time in the Lord's work today. I went to Messiah College to study history. And uh, yeah, there you go. And uh, I'm not going to do any secret handshakes or sing any alma mater songs. But, you know, uh, in any case, I thought I would go on and, and do graduate work and be a college professor. But the Lord radically altered my plans and called me to his work. And eventually, I was commended by my home assembly in 1999 to full-time service for the Lord. So we've been literally all over the globe preaching the word of God, and we continue to do that as the Lord opens doors. Enough about us. You can ask any question you like privately, but we want to hear from the Lord in his word. And so we turn to the book of Amos, the book of Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. I intend to get through chapters 1 and 2 tonight because they're a block. That sounds more daunting than it is. We'll be able to summarize and consolidate a bit. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep readers of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, just to take our bearings of the setting there, verse 1 has tipped us off that this is during the time period of the divided monarchy. In other words, you remember that Israel asked the Lord for a king. They said, give us a king that we may be like the nations. And God gave them their first choice, exactly the sort of king they would want, 
a great big tall fellow, Saul the son of Kish. Except unfortunately, his obedience to the Lord and his character did not match his physique. And he was serially disobedient. And so the Lord set him aside and chose in his place David. And you remember David had Solomon, who really presided over, in some senses, the apex of the kingdom of Israel, as far as the extent of its political power and wealth and glory. And Solomon himself was the wisest man on earth by the gifts that God gave him. And yet, through his failure, through his disobedience, through letting his many wives take his heart away from the Lord, his kingdom uh, did not, his reign rather, did not end well. And in the days of his son Rehoboam, there was a civil war. The kingdom split. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, took the ten northern tribes, which often in our Old Testaments is called Israel, or sometimes it's called Ephraim. And the southern tribe of Judah and also Benjamin, and you find refugees from the north that are there as well, they're usually called the kingdom of Judah. And so we're in that time period. Actually, we're in the 8th century BC, which was a really busy time for the Lord to speak to his people. It's the days of Isaiah the prophet. It's the days of Micah the prophet. It's the days of Hosea the prophet. These are the days also of Joel the prophet. And of course, it's the days of Amos the prophet, whom we're going to look into this weekend. And yet Amos himself, when we come to chapter 8, says, well, I wasn't even a prophet. You know, I didn't start out in school studying prophetic studies. I wasn't a prophet, nor even the son of a prophet. This career choice doesn't run in my family. I was a shepherd, or some translations like the New King James, which I'm using, say a sheep breeder. So a man of agricultural interests. And he wasn't from the northern kingdom. He was from the south, from Tekoa, which was in the land of Judah. And he came from the south, but his ministry was going to be to the northern kingdom of Israel, a.k.a. Ephraim. And these were the days of King Jeroboam. Now, not the fellow I mentioned before. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, when the nation split, he's right after Solomon. So we'll call him Jeroboam one. Okay, because right now in England, we've got Charles III. The Bible does that kind of thing, too. This is Jeroboam, the son of Joash, you notice. So we'll call him Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II is king of Israel. And Uzziah, also known as Azariah in the book of uh, 1 Kings, sorry, 2 Kings, is a good friend of Isaiah and his partner in many things uh, of the Lord's work. But these were days when, generally speaking, things were pretty good in these kingdoms. Assyria had some political things going on. So they weren't paying too much attention to Israel and Judah at this point in time. And so things prospered. And economically, these countries seemed to do well. There there were things that were going on well from an outward perspective. It was peaceful. They were prosperous. Politically, they seemed to be regaining some lost ground and maybe even expanding a little bit. And yet, as we go through the prophecy of Amos, we find that all was not well in Israel. That there was, in fact, very deep spiritual problems. Now, what I'm going to call this series of messages this weekend 
is lessons for last days from Amos. Lessons for last days from Amos. Now, by definition, people say, oh, do you think we're in the last days? Yes, we have been for almost two millennia now. That is, Hebrews 1.1 tells us that in these last days, God has spoken unto us in his Son. And so, once the Lord Jesus came to earth and died on the cross and rose again from the dead, that signaled something about this planet. That signaled, as the Lord Jesus said in John 16, that the ruler of this world has been judged. Okay, the jury's not out. We don't have to wonder who's going to win. Is God going to win or the devil going to win? The devil's already lost. Now, it's true, he's very active. But you'll know that you could really be on the losing side of something and keep fighting till you're absolutely forced to cease. And I think about Nazi Germany as a good example of that. That really, from D-Day onward, the death knell of the Third Reich was sounded. Were there big battles after D-Day? Were there tremendous slaughter? Were there a lot of casualties on all sides of that conflict? Yes, there were. But from that time onwards, you can kind of trace the decline, where no longer is that Nazi Third Reich expanding and taking territory and consolidating its gains. It's now being pushed back and back and back until the Russians converge from one side, the Soviets as they were in those days, and the Allies converge from the other side, and Hitler and his entourage kill themselves or otherwise try to escape. So someone can be defeated and yet still be fighting, still be opposing. And that's what Satan's doing. He's very busy in the world today, and he's going to continue to be busy until the Lord comes and casts him directly into the lake of fire. The book of Revelation tells us so. Now, that being said, we're living in last days. In what way can I say that Amos was speaking about last days? Well, he's literally preaching to Israel in its last days. Because within a generation of these words, Israel is going to be no more as an independent nation. The ten tribes are going to be carried away into captivity in 722, or some say 721 BC. And the Assyrians are going to have a resurgence, and they're going to come back, and they're going to carry these tribes away captive. Now, someday they're going to be regathered. Again, prophetic scripture tells us so. And in the last days of the, of the tribulation period, which we're not yet in, because that follows the rapture of the church, in those days, the Lord is going to regather those tribes and Israel is going to be restored in a miraculous way. Doesn't mean all of Israel is going to be believing initially, but by the end of the tribulation, there's a remnant that most certainly is believing and that looks to Jesus as their Messiah and Lord, and they call out to him for salvation as Zechariah 12 and Isaiah 53 and other passages show us, and the Lord will restore them. And even Amos is going to end with a very similar sort of prophecy. So these are prophecies that were for the last days of Israel in the 8th century BC. But the principles here are very much extended into our era and talk about the same things we face. And in fact, Amos is quoted in the book of Acts in the church age, at least on two occasions, quoted by Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and quoted by James, the half-brother of our Lord, at the so-called Jerusalem Council 
in Acts chapter 15. So it is a very important book in Scripture. And as Brother John said, we might round the corner in glory one day, and there's Amos with his beard. And we don't want to say, uh, 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 now I didn't get around to reading your book. I was just so taken with Jonah, you know, and the big fish and all that. Uh, but you want to be able to say, no, no, there was this funny looking bloke from Pennsylvania who told us about you. And that got me into digging into the book for myself and, and teasing out all kinds of wonderful truths. Or maybe you're already very well acquainted with it. If so, this will be review. Now, the Lord, of course, is speaking through Amos. Uh, we read here the words of Amos is how it begins. And yet he says in verse two, the Lord roars from Zion. So this is the great truth of the inspiration of Scripture. And this is important to emphasize in our day. Because people want to know, how do I know what the truth is? How do I know what to believe? Well, God has spoken. And God historically spoke through people. But when he was speaking through people, it was not their words that were being said only. These were the very words of God. And they were then written down and given to us in what the Bible itself calls the Scriptures. And we are told in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Or as you know, the word inspiration means God breathed. This is not the mere ruminations of a man. It's not human philosophy. It's not Amos' opinions. This is what the Lord says. And notice the first phrase about what the Lord says in verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion. Now, I was at the Cincinnati Zoo the other day with my family, and uh, we went to the lion pen, and there was this majestic male lion and this lovely female lion lying in the sun and looking very uh, lackadaisical and sedate and almost asleep. And other than the occasional twitching of the ear, one might have thought that they were just sleeping. And I thought it would be a great thing if I came up to the lion enclosure and I began singing that classic hymn of the faith, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. And uh, if you know that, of course, the, the man who sings the lead part in that song, I think it was the tokens, but I could be wrong on that. But when he sang it, he sang it in this very high falsetto. And so I did my best high falsetto that I could, when immediately the lion stood up and looked at me with great disdain. It was really crushing to my ego, you know. I didn't think my singing was that bad, but uh, maybe over your pie I'll do special music for you if you want, and you can agree with the lion about me. But I've been in many zoos, because I love going to the zoo, and sometimes when you go to the zoo, you'll hear a lion making these roaring noises. Ooh. I used to know a man when I was young named Tiernest Wilson, who spent 40 years as a missionary in Africa. And he talks in his book, Angola Beloved, about being in a tent with his little baby son and roaring lions outside the tent. And all he had was an itty-bitty shotgun. I mean, a shotgun's nice, but with those lions, it was not... Uh, certain that he was going to get out of there. So they prayed very fervently and the Lord kept them from any harm at the lions. But imagine when you hear a lion roar, this is not a pleasant greeting. This is not indicating that the lion's happy to see you and he's just saying, hey, how you doing? So nice of you to come by and see me. When the lion roars, he's about to attack. And here the Lord 
roars from Zion, the poetic name of Jerusalem. And he utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Now, you get a lot of agricultural terminology in this book because, again, that's Amos's job, right? He's a sheep breeder. He's a man of the soil. He is a fellow of agrarian pursuits. So he understands pasturage. He understands grass. And in fact, that would have been the dominant economic activity in Israel in those days was agriculture, not industry. And so when he talks about the Lord roaring and the pasture lands withering, that's a fearsome image. That's like talking about the next great depression coming. That's like talking about the stock market crashing. That's like talking about a mega glitch in the internet that sends down all your social media for a day. Too horrible to contemplate, isn't it? But, okay. Anyway, I can see I got my work cut out for me this weekend. But you know, it's indicative of the fact that things weren't right in Israel. And that the Lord's having to come to them with a message of judgment. Now, don't despair. Because the judgment is going to be accompanied with mercy. And there's going to be a message of salvation that keeps reoccurring through the book. But make no mistake about it, God doesn't play around when it comes to sin. God is holy, and he must judge sin. So he uses this very strong language, and he's actually going to revisit that imagery of a lion in chapter 3, and talk about that again in regard to his judgment against sin. Now, interestingly, one of the great powers of that day that I've already mentioned, Assyria, who's eventually going to carry Israel away into captivity, one of their national symbols was the lion. And you can even see, if you go to the British Museum in London, for example, they have statues of lions from ancient Nineveh. And they have wall reliefs that the archaeologists layered, brought back in the 19th century. And lions are very prominent images. So, the Lord is going to say, you know, you might think about nations like that that are dangerous and fearsome and even predatory, but I'm the real king of the jungle. I'm the one you've got to worry about. I'm the one who's roaring, and you better pay attention to what I have to say. Now, it starts out okay because he talks about their enemies. There's actually seven judgment oracles, and the first six oracles are about somebody else. This is in the first two chapters. There are seven judgment oracles. It's a bit like when I have to castigate, on very rare occasions, when I have to castigate my eldest child, Anastasia, and I'm rebuking Anastasia. Nadia feels pretty good about life because she's number two, you know? But she's thinking, ha, Anna's getting it now, you know? Dad's giving her a tongue lashing. And then I turn on Nadia and I say, and you. (laughs) And now Fiona, who's number three, she's saying, well, at least it's them and not me, you know? And then I say to Fiona, now let me talk about what you've done wrong. And then, oh no, I'm caught up in it as well. And you know who's feeling really good about life? The youngest, Micah. And he's thinking, well, it's my sisters. Go get them, dad. Yeah, come on, ground them, punish them, do something. And then I turn to him. And that's basically how this goes in Amos. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, 
For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now, this is going to be a reoccurring phrase in this section for three transgressions and for four. And it's the kind of language God uses elsewhere in the Bible as well, such as in the wisdom literature. When we think about like the book of Proverbs chapter 30, for example, where he says, there's three things that I don't understand, yea, four that are a wonder to me, is what uh, the writer of Proverbs says. Or you can even think about earlier in Proverbs chapter 6, I think it is. He says, these, seven, uh, these six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. So it's a way of showing, look, God is keeping a very careful calculation here. He's enumerating the sins that have committed, and they're not getting by him. When we speak about transgressions, which is a very repeated word, I think it's like 14 times in this book, we get the word transgressions. And it's the idea of going over a standard, breaking the law. And God, of course, is a lawgiver. We know that from what he did at Sinai. We know that from the Ten Commandments. We know that from the other commandments he gives in his word. And even the Lord Jesus in the New Testament says, he who loves me will keep my commandments. Or if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It can be translated. But here he says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I'll not turn away its punishment. Now we're going to see why in a moment. But we're basically north of Israel. Damascus still exists. It's one of the oldest cities in the world. This is the ancient kingdom of Syria, still called Syria today. Or in Bible times, it was also known as Aram, A-R-A-M, okay? The Arameans. And what was their problem? Well, he says, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. Again, he uses an agricultural metaphor. Threshing is kind of a violent agricultural activity to separate the wheat from the chaff. And whatever they had done uh, to the people of Gilead, which is up in the region we call the Golan Heights today in the north of Israel, they had come in and they had threshed it with implements of iron. In other words, they had torn the place up. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazel. Now, Hazel is one of those dynastic names in Syria. Like you get a bunch of Henrys in the history of the English monarchy. Again, we could think of Herman's Hermits. I'm her eighth old man. Everyone was a Henry. She wouldn't have a Willie or a Sam. You say, Keith, how is it that born in 1973, you know so much about this? Well, before my mom was saved, she was on American bandstand on times. And uh, also, Uh, I was a history major, so I know about stuff before I was born. So don't worry about it. But Hazel was like that. That was a name that you get different times in the Bible connected with this kingdom of Syria. And Ben-Hadad is kind of like the title Pharaoh became in Egypt. It's a way of referring to their king. So he says, I'll send a fire, which fire in the Bible, commonly associated with the holiness of the Lord, and especially his holy judgment. Think Exodus 3, the burning bush. Think Deuteronomy, where it says our God is consuming fire. And of course, the book of Hebrews quotes that. And he says, I'm going to send a fire and devour, another common word in Amos, the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the bar of the gate of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon. 
and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Syria shall go captive to Kir, says the Lord. Now there's a cross-reference to 2 Kings 16 there that you can look up on your own. But basically the Lord's saying, what you sow, you're going to reap. How you've treated others, that's what I'm going to do to you. You've been rough on these other countries and attacked these other countries. Well, payback is coming. You're going to get your comeuppance and I'm going to deal with you in a holy way. Your defenses, even the bar of your gate is going to be broken. And the Valley of Avin, which some scholars think was a literal place. Others say, no, it means the Valley of Wickedness. Maybe it's a description of their behavior in that area. Beth Eden, of course, the house of pleasure. Eden, the name of the original garden, but it has the sense of pleasure. So here are a wicked people that are given over to hedonism, to pleasures. And God says, my judgment is coming. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. So now he's talking about Philistine territory. This is the Mediterranean coast of Israel. And he's talking about the Philistines who captured people. Why? To sell them into slavery, to Edom. But he says, verse 7, I'll send a fire upon the wall of Gaza. That's another one of their cities, which shall devour its palaces. I'll cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, another one of their cities. And the one who holds the scepter, obviously the king, from Ashkelon, another city of theirs, I'll turn my hand against Ekron. You know from 1 Samuel 5 that these were major cities of the Philistines. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. That sounds pretty serious, right? You know, we can go ahead over a 100 years. We can go actually almost 200 years to the end of the independent kingdom of Judah when the prophet Zephaniah was prophesying. And Zephaniah is going to be pronouncing judgment against the Philistines in Zephaniah 2, as well as against Edom and Ammon. So while these sound like really harsh and severe judgments, and they are, God even then isn't executing judgment immediately. He's giving time for repentance. Why? Because 2 Peter 3 explains to us, that our God is long-suffering, that he is not willing that any should perish. Now, people in our world today, they say, well, if what we're doing is so bad, why doesn't God come and intervene? Oh, be careful what you wish for, because that day is going to come. The Lord's not slack, says Second Peter 3, as some men count slackness. But he has a very definite plan. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, he explains. He wants all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But if people won't have his truth, if they won't repent and believe the gospel, beware, the judgment will overtake them. And so it is with these nations. Now he turns in verse 9 to Tyre. Again, at the end of independent Judah's history, a couple hundred years on, He's still pronouncing in the book of Ezekiel in the late 20s there, like around chapter 28, for example, against Tyre. He's still pronouncing judgment then. And he says, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I'll not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity of Edom. So they too got into slavery. But look at this added touch. They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So you didn't want to try to make a treaty with Tyre 
because they would cheat you just as well as look at you. They didn't have any respect. You know, they say blood is thicker than water. They didn't have any respect for natural ties or treaties or any other kind of agreements. It was all about their self-interest. They were the original devotees of realpolitik, as Kissinger used to call it. Because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood, but I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. And Tyre was completely destroyed eventually by Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom. So now we're on the east, what today is the southern part of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I'll not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which will devour the palaces of Bosra. And of course, later, <clears throat> the Lord is going to pronounce further judgment against Edom by the little prophet Obadiah. So here was a people that were unrelentingly angry. And you know, that's a dangerous thing. When we, even when we think of, it's bad enough as a nation to describe it that way, but when we think about individuals, how an individual can have anger, and they don't deal with that anger. They just let it harbor and fester, and that becomes a root of bitterness. And it eats them from the inside out. And it can destroy relationships. It can destroy families. Unfortunately, it's not unknown among the people of God. It can destroy and split churches, can't it? And so it's a very serious sin he's describing here. Again, he speaks about Ammon. By the way, Edom, descendants of Esau. So you might say distant cousins of Israel. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four, I'll not turn away its punishment because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. So here's people that want more and more and more. And they don't care, even taking the most vulnerable members of society. They'll not only kill them, they'll do it in the most wretchedly violent way. And even women with child, which in our days, they're no safer, unfortunately, in our world than they've ever been in the history of the world. Because uh, we have the scourge of abortion, not only in the United States, but all over the world. And in some countries, they just expose their children the way the ancient Romans did, take them out in the field and leave them, leave the wild animals, get to them. Horrible stuff that the Lord's going to judge. He says, verse 14, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah. That's their capital or one of their capitals. And it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity. He and his princes Together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I'll not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So here is a nation that's not satisfied with just killing somebody. They want to desecrate his body. They want to destroy all that's connected with humanity about them. And we're living in days like that too. When the whole notion of humanity is under attack. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And that is being attacked. And human people are being desecrated and mutilated in some cases, even from childhood. 
But he says, I'll send a fire upon Moab. It'll devour the palaces of Kiriot. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound, and I'll cut off the judge from its midst and all its princes with him, says the Lord. Now think of it. Edom were distant cousins. They were descendant from Esau. When we think about Ammon and Moab, they're nearer cousins because that takes us back to Genesis 19. They're the children of Lot, you remember, by that sad story of incest that happened after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But all these nations had turned on God's people, had turned on Israel and Judah, and done unspeakable things to them and to other nations as well. And they weren't going to escape God's judgment. But then it's getting very close to home, to their southern brothers, not just cousins, but the southern kingdom of Judah. Chapter 2, verse 4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I'll not turn away its punishment. Now, what had they done? Did they go out and massacre people? Did they kill women and their babies? Did they enslave people? Now, here's the sin that's pointed out for them. I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Now, the word law, Torah in Hebrew that the Jews still use very commonly today, the original meaning of that word is instruction. And sometimes it's used in place of the whole word of God. So when he talks about the law of the Lord, we shouldn't just think, oh, the Ten Commandments, or even the other parts that are clear ordinances and statutes and judgments like we have so often in Leviticus, for example. But they weren't listening to the Bible. And they didn't want to follow what the Lord said. Their lies lead them astray. That's probably a reference to idolatry. Lies which their fathers followed. So they're following tradition, but it's bad tradition. You know, the only kind of tradition you want is apostolic tradition. Paul said to the Corinthians that I'm thankful that you hold the traditions as I pass them down to you. What kind of traditions were they? Well, the doctrine of headship and the uncovered head of the man and the covered head of the woman in 1 Corinthians 11. Or the gospel itself in 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul says, I pass these things down to you using the verbal form of the word tradition. That's the only kind of tradition that's worthwhile. If it's just man's tradition, well, it can be useful for a time or a situation, but it's not of the same value and authority as God's tradition. God's word must be followed. He says, I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Now we're at the top of the hour, but we started five minutes late. So I'm going five minutes over. So just so you can mentally recalibrate there. But after going through these six oracles of judgment, looking at all of the neighbors and even looking at Judah, now he comes to them. Verse six, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. So right off the bat, you know something is askew here. They value material things more than people. And they'll sell a person for material gain, for silver or for a pair of sandals. Now that's bad, isn't it? I mean, at its apex, the very worst instance of that in the Bible is Judas Iscariot, isn't it? Because he sold our blessed Lord for 30 pieces of silver. But the incipient root sin is here. 
in Israel back in the 8th century B.C. It says in verse 7, They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar and clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Now, essentially, it's saying they don't help the poor. They oppress the poor. And what's more, they're very religious. They go to their temples, but they're not worshiping the true and living God of the Bible because they're not following his word. They're following idols, idols that tell them you can engage in immorality. (coughs) And when you think about it, immorality where they lie down and commit the immorality on garments that they've taken in pledge. So you've oppressed a poor person and taken away their garment, which Deuteronomy said you're to give back to them for him to sleep in it and cover with it. You're taking that and you're using it with horrible sin. And yet you can call yourself religious. (laughs) Well, there's plenty of people today who would describe themselves as Christian in our land but they live in all kinds of immoral ways and engage in all kinds of things with their bodies. And they say, well, it doesn't matter what I do in my body. God doesn't really care what I do in my bedroom, does he? It's nobody's business but mine. God says, I beg to differ. I'm a holy God, and these things are sin, and they are destructive of people. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Now, who are the Amorites? They're the seven nations that lived in Israel before God brought Israel into that land. They lived in Canaan before Israel came. And God says specifically to Israel back in Deuteronomy 9, now don't think I'm giving you the land because you're greater or more superior or or morally better than the nations before you. These nations were so bad, I cast them out. And later in Deuteronomy, he says, if you engage in the same sins they did, I'm going to carry you away from the land. And God eventually would do that, of course. But he says, think about this. I destroyed the Ammonites, whose height was like the height of the cedars. He was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above, his roots from beneath. So another agricultural image from Mr. Amos, who took care of sycamore trees as well as sheep. Also it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. Now think of this. God's saying, go back to the gospel here. Why should you be holy? Well, because remember, I redeemed you. I saved you out of Egypt and I brought you into the land and I cast these nations out, not so that you could act just like them, but so that you could be different, that you could be my special people, a holy people. And you know, the New Testament says the same thing to the church in our age that we are bought with a price, we're not our own, therefore we're to glorify God in our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6 would tell us, among many other passages. But he says, uh, verse 11, I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. You can read number 6 about that. Someone taking a vow of consecration to the Lord to be holy and serve the Lord. And God's saying here, it wasn't like you were ignorant of my standards or what I wanted. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. Now, that was one of three things Nazarites were forbidden to do, to eat of the fruit of the vine or to drink wine. And instead of encouraging their young people in separation for the Lord and being spiritual and serving the Lord and turning away from the sins of the world, they got them drunk. 
And they said, here, drink some wine. I mean, that's pretty bad, isn't it? And commanding the prophet saying, do not prophesy. Now, what do you do to a nation that says, we don't want to hear the word of God? We don't want God to speak. Later, Amos is going to talk in this book about a famine in the land, a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. May that not ever come to our land, our land that's had the Bible for over four centuries. And we have it so frequently and in so many places that some people take it for granted. May we not ever do that. The Lord says, Behold, I'm weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. In other words, you're not going to escape this judgment. If you don't repent of this, and there will be much discussion in this book about repenting and turning back to the Lord and being saved. But if you don't repent of this, there won't be any escape. And you can't blame God because not only is he warning them through Amos, but you read Deuteronomy and all of these things are exactly what God told them in passages like Deuteronomy 28, that if they turn from the Lord and turn to other gods and turn to their sins and didn't follow God's word, This is exactly what would happen to them. So we're going to see it, brothers and sisters. We're going to see a lot of things that are uncomfortably close to our nation, to our time, to how people around us are behaving. And yet the answer is still the same. We've got to get back to the Lord and his word. That's our only hope. And I'm not saying there's necessarily hope for our nation. God is interested in much more than nations. He's building the church, which is transnational. So it may be already too late for our nation. I don't know. I hope not. But it may be too late for the United States of America. I know it's not too late for the church. Because the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May we be encouraged to hold to that word and obey the Lord even tonight. Shall I pray for this promised pie? I pray in faith then. Father, we are thankful for thy word. We do thank thee for the time of fellowship we're about to have and for the refreshment and the pie. We're grateful for all those who've made this weekend possible. We pray that we'd have open minds and hearts to hear thy word, to hear, as the Lord Jesus so often said to us, let him that hath ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we want to do that. We want to hear thy voice this weekend, Father. We want to not only hear it, but we want to be doers of it. We want to obey thee and please thee. And so help us, Father, in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.